choices were to have Dave do a song and dance, which we quickly decided against, <laughs> or to just have a moment of silence while the offering bags went around. So, so here we are. That was, that was option number two. There we go. Okay. Now think with me for a moment, if you will, about what we've encountered together as a fellowship over the past few weeks. We've pondered together what has often been called the greatest story ever told. We've thought deeply about the implications of what Jesus accomplished for us in purchasing our salvation. We've thought about the significance of the blood of Jesus. We've thought about the events of that awful, horrible, yet amazing and wonderful day that we call Good Friday, when Jesus, the perfect, sinless sacrifice, by his own free choice made in agreement with God before time began, suffered what was one of, clearly one of the most horrible and painful and cruel methods of execution ever devised by man. We considered the words he spoke, even in the midst of dying a painful death. We considered the historical fact of his resurrection from the dead and the reality that because he lives, because he is no longer in the tomb, he now sits at the right hand of the Father. And we reviewed all that that reality means to us today. Now, in thinking about our Holy Week and Easter Sunday services after the fact this past week in our elders meeting, we talked about how much time we typically spend on the build-up to Christmas. We have four weeks of Advent, don't we? We have our Advent liturgy. Of course, we're not talking about the commercial build-up. That starts at the end of October. But we have four weeks of Advent to prepare our hearts for the very important celebration of the Incarnation. Jesus, the God-man, the one that John called the Word made flesh who dwelt among us. And, you know, that's very appropriate that we spend that time building up to Christmas. Though we do have to resist the distraction of the purely cultural trappings that have been developed over the years related to Christmas. And we must be very intentional about focusing on the true reason for the season of Christmas. I think as followers of Christ, we can't underestimate the importance or the wonder of what we celebrate at Christmas. But we also cannot say that Easter and the events leading up to that day are any less important or any less wondrous. It's at least equal in terms of its significance in the life of our faith. And, you know, we could probably make a very good case that what we mark the last few weeks is even more important, more critical, and as such should be more emphasized. Now, I'm not going to make that case this morning. It's not essential that we decide that one's more important than the other. They're both part of the greatest story ever told. But I do believe that it's essential that we live constantly, even intentionally, in the shadow of the cross and in the light of the resurrection. And in that sense, at least, we cannot and we should not in any way lessen the impact of or the significance of the season that we've just completed. If we listen to the Word of God, we see that the Incarnation made the events of the last few weeks possible. After all, if Jesus was not fully man and fully God, none of what we marked these past few weeks would have been possible. Still, we see the echoes of the cross. We see the echoes of the resurrection and all that was accomplished on that hill throughout the Word of God. With that in mind this morning, what I'd like to do is pause I'd like to slow down and consider the view in our rearview mirror and not just speed past Holy Week or Easter and quickly move on 
to the next thing. I want to look at a passage in which we clearly see that shadow of the cross, those echoes outlined in the Word of God. Those kinds of passages are not hard to find, as we've noted. The Word provides constant reminders of Jesus' sacrifice for us, and it makes very clear application of what was accomplished. What's more, the Word is not just theologically theoretical. This isn't theory. This isn't just doctrine, although you do know that here at TCF we believe that doctrine is very important. Doctrine is applied to our lives in very practical ways, in very real ways. Doctrine is foundational uh, for everything that we build on top of that in our Christian lives. So with all those as an introduction, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to read two verses this morning as our primary text. And then we're going to think about, even wrestle with just a little bit, the implications of what these verses say. And as we do, I want you to look for these echoes of the cross and the resurrection as we think these through. So we're going to start with 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. That's the last verse in the chapter. And then we're going to read the first verse of chapter 6, verse 1. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then moving on to chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Now, I want to note something as a little sidebar. While chapter and verse divisions in Scripture are very helpful for us to find things, these were not in the original language. So even though chapter 5, verse 21 ends one chapter, chapter 6, verse 1 begins the next chapter, we have to notice that the Apostle Paul, who is the author of this epistle, is continuing his thought process despite the chapter division that we see here. Now, sometimes that's not as important as other times, but in this case, I think it is. That's because of a connecting word that we see. Sometimes at the beginning of a chapter, we'll see words like for or therefore. Sometimes we see words such as but or then or also, namely, moreover, nevertheless, those kinds of words. Well, in verse 1 of chapter 6, we see this connecting or this transition particle in the original. Some versions that you might have actually leave it out. And without careful meaning or a careful examination of the original language, we might believe that Paul was actually beginning a completely new thought, unrelated to what had come before. However, one Bible dictionary says this about the word in this text, calling it a particle. And it's standing after one or two words in a clause, more frequently denoting transition or, con or conversion, and serving to introduce something else, whether opposed to what precedes, or simply continuative or explanatory. Generally, it has the meaning of but, and, or, also, namely. Here in the word, uh, in verse 6, what we see in the translation that I read is then, in the English Standard Version, we see the word and in the New American Standard. As in the ESV, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God. So remember that thought, and let's, with that little bit of a detour behind us, let's look at chapter 5, verse 21. In many ways, this verse could be considered a summary statement of the gospel. Let's read it again. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 
This verse is one of many key verses in the New Testament that reveal a very big and a very important concept called imputation. Now, if you've never heard that word before, imputation means essentially setting to someone's account or reckoning something to another person. God reckoned righteousness to believing Abraham. We see that in Genesis. This means that God credited to Abraham that which he did not have in himself. Paul explains that in Romans, the verse that's referenced on the screen. This does not mean that God accepted Abraham's faith instead of righteousness as an accomplishment meriting justification. Rather, it means that God accepted Abraham because he trusted in God rather than trusting in something that he could not do. Imputed means to consider as if. In this case, God considered Jesus as if he was sinful, though the verse is very clear that he is not, to pay the price for our sin, and then also he considers us as righteousness when we are in Christ, even though in ourselves we are clearly not righteous. This verse is about what God accomplished on the cross through Jesus. This verse is about what it means for us applied to believers, those who are, as the verse says, in him. We are seen by God as righteous. God, when he looks at believers in Christ, sees what Jesus did on the cross, and because of that, he sees us as righteous. Scripture is pretty clear about that. Let's, the, let's let the awesome reality of that truth sink in for just a moment. When he looks at us as believers in Christ, he sees what Jesus did on the cross. And because of that, he sees us as righteous. That's an amazing thing. Any of us knows that in ourselves we're not righteous. Scripture is very clear about this too, in case we're not clear about this. Writing to believers, the Apostle John wrote in uh, 1 John 1.8, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's why the qualifying phrase, a very short two words in this passage here is so important. In him. In him. In him we become the righteousness of God. In Christ alone. In ourselves we are sinful. In Christ we are seen by God as righteous. This verse is a declaration. It's a declaration that whoever is in Christ has a right standing before God because of the fact that he is in union with Christ, and only because of that. We see this idea of imputation even more fully in another passage of Scripture I'm going to read here in just a moment. You know, there are essentially three kinds of imputation in Scripture. We see, first of all, that the sin of Adam is imputed to us. That's the idea of original sin. We see also that our sin is imputed to Jesus on the cross. And then in this verse that we're reading this morning, we also see that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Amazing stuff here, guys. Let's take a look at the passage that tells us about all three. It's a little bit longer passage, so if you have your Bibles, you might want to read along with me. If not, just kind of stick with me here as we read from Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law, 
Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following that one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Amazing truth in this passage of Scripture. This is the fuller picture of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, part of our text this morning. Again, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he, God, referring to God, made him, referring to Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now that's amazing grace. That's truly amazing grace. What a marvelous truth this is. What a marvelous truth we're considering here this morning from God's Word. Now, some might think that it's unfair for the sin of Adam to be considered as ours. No one likes to take the blame for somebody else's mistake. Isn't that true? Hey, that was Adam. I didn't. I wouldn't have eaten that fruit. Well, on the one hand, that's probably not true. Romans 3.23 tells us all have sinned. But think of this, if it's unfair that the sin of Adam was considered to be ours down through history, do we also want to complain that it's unfair that Jesus had our sin considered by God on the cross to be his own? Do we want to say that it's not fair that we are considered righteous, not because of our own innate goodness, but because God chooses to see us as righteous in Christ? Now at this point, I think most of us want to back up the fairness truck rather than complain about fairness. My guess is that none of us wants to take this fairness argument too far because we see the logical implications of it, don't we? Fairness would mean death for all eternity, eternal separation from God. Mercy and grace instead bring life. I don't want fairness, I want mercy. I don't want fairness, I want God's grace. The upshot of all this is that becoming the righteousness of God in Christ puts the emphasis on an event and an act that takes place outside the believer in which the believer becomes a participant in Christ. Let me say that again. It's on the screen if you want to read it. The upshot of all this is that becoming the righteousness of God in Christ puts the emphasis on an event and an act that takes place outside the believer in which the believer becomes a participant in Christ. It is God who supplies the means of believers becoming a new creation, and it is God who both incorporates and recognizes them in Christ and ultimately counts them as righteousness in Him. This does not at all diminish the fact that being a new creation means a transformation brought about by the Spirit, 
To the contrary, it provides the only sure foundation for understanding that transformation has a definite, objective beginning in union with Christ. Now this is pretty important here, so let's pay attention to this. When Paul writes to the Corinthians about becoming the righteousness of God in him, he's telling us we are a new creation. He says that just a few verses before what we read at the outset in 2 Corinthians 3.17, or I'm sorry, 5.17, very familiar verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? But with that thought, let's move on and begin to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. I want to think again about the quote we just read and what it says about being a new creation. This does not at all diminish the fact that being a new creation means a transformation brought about by the Spirit. To the contrary, it provides the only sure foundation for understanding that transformation has a definite, objective beginning in union with Christ. The only sure foundation for change, for transformation in our lives, is the imputed righteousness of Christ. The fact that in Christ, we are now new creations. It's what change is built on. It's foundational, the fact that we have our, his righteousness imputed to us. So it's all of God's grace. That's so clear in Scripture. We're saved because God imputed our sins to Jesus on the cross and because God the Father now sees the sacrificial work of Christ when he looks at us. He sees us as righteous. We read that in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one will boast. With this idea established again as a foundation for what's to come, we read again 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. So that's what we just heard, right? We're, we got this idea. It's imputed to us. But then it says, working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Or in another version, we read, as God's partners, we beg you not to accept this marvelous gift of God's kindness and then ignore it. So Paul's pretty serious about this issue, isn't he? In various Bible versions, we see words like appeal in verse 1. We see beg. In the King James, we see beseech. We see urge in the New International and the New American Standard. We see plead with you in the New King James Version. It's not as if Paul says, well, hey, you know what? You might kind of want to think about this. That's not what he's saying. There's clearly some force. There's some urgency behind this exhortation. He begins by saying that we work together with him, that we're God's fellow workers. Now, grace is a gift, but we can receive this gift or not. Then once given a gift, what do we do with it? That's what this verse is about. Do we work with the gift or do we work against it? Now, admittedly, this is a very tough verse for us to wrestle with, especially in light of where we've come from, about the imputed righteousness of Christ. We discussed this at length in our house church this week. On the one hand, we just saw clearly in considering the previous verse that the only means of righteousness before God is the imputed righteousness of Jesus. We can't earn it. We can't boast about having it in and of ourselves. It's not innate to us. It's given to us. A gift is just that, right? It's freely earned. It's not earned. It's given. That's what grace is, unmerited favor. We've heard that before, right? 
So if it's unmerited, unearned, in fact, it cannot be earned, how can we receive that gift in vain? That's kind of the question here, isn't it? Vain is the Greek word kenos, and it means empty, to no purpose, without result. In our world, we are results-oriented, aren't we? And the only way we know how to get results is to work for it. But we've just learned from Scripture that we can't work our way to righteousness. So how does this phrase possibly apply to us this morning? Now, there's different ways of looking at this, so we're going to explore a few of those. Some segments of the church would say that in vain refers to a profession of faith that was never genuine to begin with. It may have appeared to be at first, but in reality it was never genuine. Basically, it means that someone was never saved to begin with. So they, using Paul's word, somehow received God's grace in vain. It was empty, and it didn't achieve the purpose for which it was offered. A supporting verse for this particular view might include 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, which says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they are not all of us. John said that this group left them. They left them either deliberately because they deceived them or they were deceived themselves. In other words, they were never really Christians. That's what John is saying. Yet in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul uses the word receive here. He doesn't say reject. He doesn't talk about rejecting the grace of God. He says receiving the grace of God. A definition of the Greek word for receive here says it means to accept an offer deliberately and readily, to take to oneself what is presented or brought by another, to receive. So wait a minute. Did they receive God's gift or did they reject it? Those are two different things, aren't they? If Paul meant to say, don't reject God's grace, or if he meant to say, be really sure you've received God's grace and don't deceive yourselves, why did he instead say, don't receive God's grace in vain? Now, some other Christians believe this refers to what we might call backsliding. Most of us who've been in the church for a while have heard about that, hopefully not referred to as us. That's when someone might truly be a Christian. They might be truly saved, but never develop Christ-likeness in their lives. And so because of that, they might risk eternal rewards, but not necessarily risk their salvation. There's others who believe Paul might be referring to those who are true believers, but then at some point they fall away from the faith completely and they are no longer saved. That's the polar opposite of what we might have heard of as believing that once you are saved, you are always saved, regardless of how you live your life thereafter. Falling away from salvation then would be, receive, would be receiving the grace of God in vain, without effect, without accomplishing what it was meant to accomplish. You know what? Those are just three of the ideas that are out there, and we're not going to settle this this morning. Sorry <laughs> if you were hoping for a, a solid answer. Each of these positions, I believe, are legitimate perspectives on this verse. And solid Bible-believing Christians across the spectrum have espoused these ideas and others about receiving the grace of God in vain. So what I'd like to do with our remaining few minutes here this morning is to consider things that this phrase must at least mean. If it doesn't mean these other things, or if we can't wrestle with it and 
fully figure it out, what does it at least mean this morning? And now let's leave the rest of it to others more learned than myself. I'm coming to believe more and more that there are some, and let me emphasize some things in Scripture, that seem to be polar opposites to us, but are both somehow true and compatible with each other. Now, I say that with great fear and trepidation, okay? I say that with great fear and trepidation. I think of things like Jesus is fully God and fully man, for example. That's one of those things that seem to be polar opposites to us, but yet they're completely true and they're taught in Scripture. Faith versus works, that's kind of part of today's message. Or one God in three persons, how can that be, right? The kingdom is here now, but not yet fully. These are just a few examples of those things that we tend to think of as either or. Now, the reason I say this with great fear and trepidation, and I hesitate to say this to any audience, is because there are some who might use this idea that there's a both and in some places with some passages in Scripture. There are some who might use this idea that these two, two seemingly opposite things might be true as license to say, well, this means this to you and that to me, and that's okay because it's all just opinion. And then they might use this idea that two seemingly opposite things can be true with biblical concepts that are not both true. I don't believe that. Scripture has a meaning. Scripture has a meaning. Just because I can't always grasp or fully explain these seeming paradoxes doesn't mean that there's not one true meaning. For example, you might think that Jesus did not literally rise from the dead, but the resurrection is just a metaphor for how God makes things new. There are churches that preached that last Sunday. I, however, believe the resurrection is history, and it's essential for our faith. You might think that in the beginning God did not create, but somehow all we see around us came about because of random natural selection. But I stand by Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. There are things on which I believe we must stand firm on the clear witness of Scripture and the thousands of years of people way smarter than me wrestling with these truths. Still, we see these apparent paradoxes, yet we are to be shaped by Scripture. As we see here in this passage, God, as a gift of his sheer mercy, imputes, he thinks of, he reckons the righteousness as belonging to us. Through the lens of the cross, he sees us as righteous. Yet Paul, in the very next verse, says, don't receive this gift of grace in vain. How do we reconcile these ideas? You know what? We don't. We don't. We accept them. We don't reconcile them. We accept them. We've hardly begun to explore this idea of trusting in God's grace as the only means of our salvation on the one hand, versus our need to somehow exhibit that this faith is real and to grow in it so that we don't receive the gift of God's grace in vain. Yet, here is the fact I believe. I believe Scripture teaches they are both true. And not just in the verses that we're looking at this morning. Let me give you another example from Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul writes to the church at Philippi, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And then he says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wait a minute. How does that work? 
Paul writes to the Philippians, work out your uh, salvation. Yet he says, God who works in us. So which one is it? It's both. It's both. And he says that God's work includes our very will for God's purposes, for his good pleasure. Now, I think most of us here believe in some form of free will, or you might call it free agency. Yet here we see Paul saying that God works in us in our will. He works in us in our will. Somehow, again, both things are true. God works his will in us, yet we are to work out our salvation. We read in James chapter 2, verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? We can even go back to another passage we read earlier, but this time we're going to read the following verse, and we're going to see this both and idea. That's in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. We read the first two verses. We're going to read verse 10 now with this. The first two verses read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then it goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the fact that we must trust in Christ's sacrifice for our sins, trusting in his righteousness imputed to us, is clear. It's not about our works. But so is the fact that we were created to serve. We were created to do good works. And that God places these good works in our path. He planned them for us to accomplish as we follow him. So you know what? Regardless of where any of us might come down on the spectrum of beliefs about backsliding or falling away or the Reformed or Calvinist idea of the perseverance of the saints, that is that once we're saved, we're always saved, we can't lose that, we have to admit that at the very least, Paul is warning us not to ignore God's grace in our lives. Not just in terms of our salvation, but in terms of our justification before God in making us also our uh, sanctification, making us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus, making us conform more and more into a reflection of that righteousness that's already been imputed to us at the cross of Christ. We can receive it and waste it, apparently, because that's why would Paul say don't ignore it. We can receive it and not let it transform us. We can ignore God's grace. We can hear that there's a medicine that cures us of a disease and even have somebody give us that medicine for free and have it on our shelf, but if we don't take it, we receive it in vain. And with many medicines, we all know this, don't you? You have to keep taking them. You don't just take them once. You take them for a while, at least for a season, if not for a longer term, for you to receive the full benefit. So it is with grace. Grace doesn't just save or justify us before God. Grace is the means of our sanctification. That is, our changing more and more into Christ-likeness. We noted in our house church when we were talking about this, this that, uh, that passage this week, that many of us understand very well grace for salvation. We all get that. But we don't understand it quite as easily for the ongoing, lifelong process of sanctification. But that's what it is. It's a lifelong process, and it's of his grace. We see it clearly 
in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, which says, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory. I mean, doesn't that relate to the righteousness of Christ? We're being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we're being transformed. It's something that's happening to us. Yet it appears that the grace of God can be received in vain when it doesn't produce God's desired results. The Corinthians' failure to practice their profession of faith was a denial of the logical implications of the gospel. Having learned that Jesus died for them, the Corinthians had not yet learned to die to themselves. This ignoring grace is an example of ingratitude for God's love, for a less than thankful attitude toward God imputing our sin to Christ and his righteousness to us. It is to fail and to grow and to mature in the Christian life as evidenced by a life that's under control of the one who died for us who believe. It's a failure to access and to appropriate and to utilize the clear means of God's grace that he has given us. God has given us means of grace. It's very simple. It's very foundational. He has given us means of grace in his word. Second Timothy 3.16 talks about his word being good for training in righteousness. He has given us our church, this church that we're sitting in here this morning, and these brothers and sisters in Christ. He has given us the privilege of prayer. These are his means of grace, and we can ignore them and thus in some way receive these means of grace, God's grace, in vain. It's to take lightly or ignore these means of grace that God has provided for us to grow in him and into the image of Christ. You know what? I want to pray this morning that it may never be said of me or any of us here that we've somehow received this marvelous, amazing gift of God's grace in our lives, the benefits of our salvation in vain. Amen? If you want to pray that prayer with me, then I'd like you to stand and we're going to pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for the wonderful benefits of the cross of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his victory over sin and death as he rose from the dead, Father God. We are grateful for the imputation, Father God, that you look at us as righteous. We are grateful for that, Father God. May we never be ungrateful by neglecting the grace that you've given us, Lord, the means of grace that you've given us, that you've clearly provided for our benefit, Father. May we never neglect your word, which is good for training in righteousness, Father God. May we never neglect our church, Father God. May it be part and parcel of what you use to mold us and shape us into the image and likeness of Christ. May we never neglect or ignore Heavenly Father. May we never receive in vain the wonderful gift, the wonderful privilege of prayer, Father, being able to come because of the blood of Jesus into the very throne room of God and bring you our prayers and our petitions and our cares and our concerns and our pains and our hurts and our joys. We are a grateful people, Father God. May we never receive God's grace in vain. May we remember 
the imputed righteousness of Christ at work in our lives. And may that change us more and more each day and transform us into the image and likeness of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.